welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-host, Valine Cawhorn and Catherine Lotsfeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. It is, um, we're currently recording it on um, January 14th, which is a, a day or two later than we had planned, but you know, life sometimes just happens um, and and here we are, Catherine. <laughs> here we are. Middle of the dang month. I don't know about you, but I we talked last week about our goals and how we want this year to shape out. And if the rest of the year is anything like the last week, I really need to get a grip on pursuing those goals because it seems like life is just turning back into one big whirlwind. And I don't have the kind of control and intentionality I have or I wanted to have over it. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's, I think that's a good reminder because I think my week was kind of the same and you, you throw in just a lot of life happenings and then you try to mix in what you personally want to do on top of that. And for me, it's running right now. Um, And it just, it fills your schedule so fast and there's like no time at home or no time to just chill and trying to figure out ways to to switch that around a little bit so that you are able to do what you want to do. Plus have some downtime to recharge and rejuvenate. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have to, I could use your advice, could use advice from listeners on how to make those kind of things happen. It's all well and good to talk about them and think about them, but trying to implement systems or optimization or whatever other corporate word you want to throw at it to actually make it happen. (laughs) Um, I, I could certainly use some, some, uh, coaching on. <laughs> well, I think, I think one thing is as I've become an adult, which is still crazy for me to even consider myself an adult, to be honest, and I'm almost 30, um, <laughs> is that when I was a kid, I always thought my parents had all their poop in a group, um, and they had it all together. And, and my parents are amazing and mom and dad, I'm sure you will listen to this, um, and I'm not downplaying, but it's it's amazing that once you become of that age, that you realize that they didn't have it all together and they just had to power through. And that's what, you know, and, and ask questions and, and meander through life. And and it's OK that we're we have to do that, too. And I think I think grace is a big thing with it as well. Always grace. It always comes back to grace, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So. um this episode wasn't really intended to be goals, but we, because we're halfway through the first, first month, um, not still what's on our minds. That's where we, we started, but Catherine had, um, kind of an amazing trip a month ago. Yeah, um, more than a month, five weeks, <laughs> six weeks. <laughs> wow. And, and we realized we hadn't told you listeners about the trip, um, and, and it was very agricultural based um, and it was work related. So Catherine, do you want to start by telling listeners a little bit about what your trip was and um, I guess why you were over there to start with? Yeah, for sure. So just as background, um, I work for a Scottish company that does dairy activity monitoring. And I mean, that sounds like cameras or something like that, watching the cows move around. And in fact, we do have vision technology in the pipeline, but most of what I work with day to day is 
best described as Fitbits for cows. <laughs> um, it's this yellow block looking pedometer, uh, ankle bracelet, essentially, that goes around a cow's uh, rear ankle. And it monitors a lot of her activity that we need to better manage cows. So the main thing is that this um, the system, it's called Cow Alert, can do um, heat detection. And then it gives you a um, best time frame to breed that cow. And I'm just bragging here a little bit, but our heat detection system is 99% accurate. <laughs> um, we have several dairies who've completely gotten away from walking and chalking cows and can just breed straight off of this system um, and improve conception rates um, by 20 or 25%, which is pretty amazing. The next thing that we do is lameness detection. And if you know anything about cows, identifying lameness sooner rather than later um, is not only better for the cow, but also saves you a lot of money in treatment um, and long-term loss productivity. So heat detection, lameness detection, and then we also do lying time, which uh, um, it, it monitors how long a cow stands up and lies down during the day. And, you know, the goal for a cow is to lie down as much as she can and chew her cut as much as she can, because when she's lying down, she's making milk. So if we notice a sudden change in behavior there, um, you know, we can we can try to trace it back and see, is this cow sick? Is she just in heat and she's stomping around a little bit more? Um, you know, is she getting bullied by cows? Does she need to go into a different pen where she can um, express more of her natural behavior? So. Um, I, I sell these systems and I also provide, um, account support after they're sold. So, um, that's my main role. And currently I am one of one and a half people in the U S. <laughs> so, okay. How do you have a half a person? in the United States? <laughs> yeah. I have a colleague in Indiana and she's half time. So <laughs> gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Works part time. So, um, we're sort of out here on this little Island all by ourselves and I've been working for um, PTL, it's Peacock Technology Limited, um, since June of 2021, right before I had Harper, and um, hadn't been over to see our headquarters or to see how the business works in the UK. So um, I was invited over for our company Christmas party, and we were thinking that would just be a weekend, and then it turned into a whole week of going over there to learn the business, meet customers, meet my coworkers. Um, and just see how it really all works from the home base. Very cool. Um, what's the what's the time difference between here and Scotland? Uh, depending on daylight savings time, it's six or seven hours. Right now, it's six hours. Okay. So a lot of a lot of my workday happens early in the morning. That's like when my big rush is. Um, both from colleagues on the other side of the pond. And then also just because we breed cows in the morning, um, if a customer has an issue with the system, I'm usually getting notified <laughs> pretty early in the morning. But um, as far as regular stuff goes, my colleagues start to drop off around noon our time. So um, that's, yeah, that's how it works. That's very, it's just very fascinating to, you know, um, interact with people internationally. You know, I, I, this year I did a lot of work with people on the East coast, um, and just two hours difference on, on scheduling things is, was challenging enough. I can't imagine six hours, um, difference, you know, trying to find time, especially if a system's down or you need, you need the engineering support back there. Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely been an entirely different way to work. 
and it's been it's taken some getting used to but you know now it's it's my everyday so I have gotten used to it and I will say my colleagues are absolutely wonderful about scheduling time that makes sense for me like they often you know they know that I'm up after they are so my day my early day is late in their day. And oftentimes, you know, we'll have client meetings we need to have or meet with contractors or something. And, you know, the best time for us is, you know, eight to five, our time. And, um, you know, I have a couple colleagues who will very definitely stay up till 10 or 11 o'clock at night just to make sure that we can accomplish what we accomplish. And I really, really appreciate that about them. Um, some of them, it seems like are just night owls anyway. Sometimes I'll get a message, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, their time. And I'm like, what are you doing awake? <laughs> <laughs> you should be sleeping. <laughs> exactly. But you know, to each their own. That's, I am not oh, yeah. an owl, but. <laughs> yeah, that's, if I'm up at, if I'm up at two, there's um, issues with my sleep and I'm one grumpy person by then. Or the cows are out, right? Or the cows are out. That has been the case um, too, more than once. Um, so when you were over in Scotland, um, what was the first thing you noticed about their agriculture? The first thing I noticed was, well, two things. One is it is extraordinarily wet and green there. Um, they have, I forget how much rain they get in a year. I think it's like two feet or something, 48 inches. They would tell you in centimeters, I believe. Yeah. But anyway, that's another thing that's been sort of trying to get used to. I'm not very good at it, but uh, converting units <laughs> um, from well, and, to Imperial. But <clears throat> And I have a whole engineering soapbox on that at some point. Um, but <laughs> we can continue with the agriculture in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, I will tell you. However, there is an app I downloaded that does quick conversions, and that's been invaluable to me. <laughs> nice that is very nice yeah so anyway yeah um I noticed it is very wet and green I mean you know they call they call Ireland the Emerald Isle and I would say it extends to Scottish or yeah Scotland England and Wales as well it's just it's unbelievably green and picturesque it looks exactly like what you see in the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings um in the Shire you know where the hobbits live it's just stunning and beautiful so the green and wetness, and then also agriculture is on such a compact scale there. Um, I think the entirety of the UK, I'm not sure it's as long north to south as Idaho is, Val. I think Idaho might be longer. So they have, I don't even know how many people, I kept asking to statistics of my boss because we were riding around together for four days. I asked all these statistics and finally he's like, Catherine, I don't know. I don't know my country <laughs> as well as you know yours, okay? <laughs> so I haven't looked up some of those things, but you know, um, I don't know if it's like maybe 20 million people, something like that. Um, on a very, very small island, when you think about it. Um, so agriculture is tiny, just it's very compact. It's a it's a large industry there, but it's very compact. The farms are smaller. The vehicles are smaller. I saw, it was crazy. I saw this uh, triple decker um, animal mover. It's not, they don't have semis. These are like self-propelled trailers, essentially, or they're, they're like a cab over um, instead of a- Kind of like a- but like they're, I'm envisioning and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm envisioning like a double decker bus, essentially. Yeah, basically. That's about what it looks okay. like. Just, you know, just like one of our double decker livestock trailers. 
Um, but what I saw, I didn't see any for cattle, but I saw a triple decker for sheep and pigs. And I was like, holy smokes, that is tiny in a triple decker. And like, it's super um, kind of top heavy, you know, like pretty wiggly. <laughs> <laughs> and their roads are narrow and windy, if I remember correctly. From super narrow and windy. So they're like, so my boss drives a little Ford Ranger, which by the way, is one of the biggest vehicles on the road there. And also riding in what I consider to be the driver's seat and he's in the passenger seat driving, that weirded me out for quite a while. And roundabouts, roundabouts go the wrong way. And I thought I was going to die every time. <laughs> but anyway, back to the agriculture, it just, I uh, say, uh, twisty, windy roads. Yeah. So the, the roads are like narrower than my boss's Ford Ranger, which we consider to be a small truck here. Right. Um, and they're, they're technically I don't, they're not too late, but traffic is going both ways. So my, I mean, they all just drive like madmen. And so you're hurling down this little lane going twisty, turny all around the corners and you come up right on somebody and immediately without even stopping hardly one or the other goes and backs up until they find a little pull off where someone can go by. And it's just, I mean, that's how they drive all the time around farm country. And I, I mean, I would get in so many crashes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, your truck or my truck, the Tundra or the, uh, my F-150, there's no way they would fit. We'd be brushing the hedges on both sides. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, things are just different in different parts of the world. And even though they're, I would say a first world country with modern agriculture Definitely. Um, and, and everything, it's still, it's still different. And to me, they speak English, um, or most of them do, right? Yeah, it's um, English, but it's wildly different accents and a lot of different vocabulary. So the only reason I understood what was going on in that regard is because I've read a lot of English um, novels, and I watched several English shows like The Crown and Dairy Girls. So that's the only reason I understood half of what I was hearing. <laughs> well, and... And they're not like I'm as I'm sitting here recording and I'm looking out my window. Um, the road is flat; it's straight. And I realized that in the United States, I would I should say the Western United States, we're on a grid system. The Eastern United States doesn't quite do that. And so, to me, what you're describing isn't necessarily a grid system. And I would probably get lost. <laughs> oh, totally. I yeah. I have no idea. I, I mean, I was born on the East Coast. Um, we moved when I was three, so I didn't have a whole lot of experience. But going back every summer, I mean, it's all, those are just paved over cow paths, in my opinion, you know, and that's the same as in the UK and people, I mean, you grow up with it and you just, you know how to navigate it, you know where places are, but um, no, there's no rhyme or reason. Like you miss one county road and you know, you can go down a mile and, and turn three corners and get back to where you were. It is not the same at all. <laughs> Not at all, but yeah. So, so it's just, it's a really compact scale just because of how how small the country is and what the population is. And just because of urban growth and everything, everything is right next to each other. Like you have, um, you know, some, a little suburb of, of houses and then right in their backyard is a dairy farm or, you know, right on the edge of town. Um, and it's really interesting. That's just the way that it's, organically grown if you'll forgive the pun um 
that my boss said, though, that that also presents some issues for agriculturists because, you know, agriculture kind of smells and it can be loud and things like that. And so the neighbors can get kind of pissy um, and you have to really be on top of your your uh, neighborhood relations. So in that regard, things are not different than the United States as far as neighbors and neighbor relationships. True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you bring that up. And one thing I noticed too was, you know, they're on a different scale. They have, you know, some different equipment, um, you know, maybe some different management techniques, but the issues that they face are exactly the same ones as we face. And I would argue probably all over the world in agriculture, labor, um, activist interference, um, you know, unfair pricing, low pricing, low market prices, um, burdensome regulations, you know, all the things that we often talk about on the podcast that we see out in the industry that you hear everyone talk about whenever you get together, you know, at a, at a meeting or with whoever at the coffee shop, same exact issues. And I guess, you know, there's something comforting and also disappointing in that comforting because we're all in this together and hopefully we can learn from each other on how to tackle those issues and disappointing that those affect people all over and it's not fun. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, and I think, I wonder, I would challenge the point that some of it's because of the modern technology growth over the last 50 years, um, even before social media, but just being able to communicate worldwide makes people aware of, um, of the issues and then, and they can either relate or that creates issues too. (laughs) Exactly. You know? Yeah. No, you hit it on the head. That's exactly right. So I guess one question I have, um, is what's, what's a typical dairy farm like over there? You know, how Mm -hmm. many cows are we looking at? What's their milk parlor style? Um, and so forth. Yeah, for sure. So we visited both ends of the spectrum, um, a couple current customers and a couple prospective customers. And um, I would, I think what my boss said, the average size was between 200 and 500 is getting on the pretty big end. Um, so we visited some of those guys and they were great. I mean, same exact issues as us. Um, and then we visited one of the largest ones in the country, which was uh, 2,200 cows. And for us, you know, that's a pretty average size dairy out here. Nothing too crazy, but um, definitely, definitely very big for over there. And uh, yeah, some of the, one of the parlors we visited was practically brand new, um, you know, new rotary, much smaller than what we're used to. I want to say it was 30 or 40 stalls, which is pretty small. Um, you know, around here we're we start around 70 usually, um, 70 stalls and yeah, they, yeah. And so, um, trying to think if we even saw a parallel parlor, I don't think we did. I think we only saw rotaries and then that 25 or 2200 cow dairy, they had a rotary too. It must've been one of the first rotaries out because it was ancient. It was old. And another thing, this was at the small dairies too, but the large dairy especially, um, he's got 2,200 cows on, I mean, 
this might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I can't think it's more than 10 acres. I mean, these barns are, they're jam-packed with cows and I mean, not to an overcrowding point, but, um, you know, they're, they're much smaller than what we're used to. Um, there are a lot older buildings and the buildings themselves are very, very close to each other and sort of just, you know, they built wherever there was room to fit something in. And, you know, that's the case that we see with a lot of older facilities. That's not just dairies or dairies in England. Um, but, you know, you and I work mostly in the space of planned out dairies, new builds and stuff like that. And so it's just a little bit uh, different to see. Yeah. And we, I mean, when we look at, especially in the Western United States, you know, the, and the Midwest, um, like the, the barn systems are kind of a new concept, you know, freestalls came kind of first, there was a few of them. And then those cross vents are, are fairly new, you know, complete housing are a fairly new concept here. And so we've, and most of them are steel structures. So they're going to withstand some time. Whereas I assume some of <laughs> the barns you're talking about are mostly wooden structures. Yeah, wooden and a lot of stone as well. Um, maybe some brick, but yeah, definitely stone and and wood, um, which is, yeah, different than what we're used to as well. And one of the smaller dairies we visited, I remember it was a parallel parlor. And first off, that pit was like three feet wide. Oh my gosh, it was teeny, 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 <laughs> tiny. I have no idea how they made it work. Um, but they're actually, they're putting in a rotary here in the next couple of years, but that dairy, um, or not just that dairy, but most of the dairies I saw, you know, they're in various states of, of repair and having to, you know, having to keep up with old structures like that, I think is a real challenge. And then also, of course, you know, they're trying to modernize in between that. And so how do you marry the structures that you have? Because capital, capital, you're, you know, capital improvements are so expensive. So how do you marry what you have and make it work with what you really need from an improved technology standpoint? Like the dairy I was just telling you about, they're going to put in a rotary. They're probably not going to put in new barns anytime soon. Well, and if it's as tight as you were, you know, the 2,200 cows on say 10 acres, there's not much breathing room to even store anything there, you know? And and it, you know, everything's tight quarters. So it's not like you can take out a pen of production and, and put something over top of it in the meantime, when you're working on those in our scale, those small of numbers, you've got to keep every cow milking. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Cause if your cows aren't milking, you aren't making any money and you won't have any money for those capital improvements. So Absolutely. the storage thing is interesting too. Um, feed storage is a challenge. Uh, because it's so wet there and so everything has to be undercover um, and also manure storage and that's a really huge problem there because they are in such tiny footprints um, and they have I think they have even tighter regulations than we do in the U.S. as far as pond linings go um, and especially land application and it's really wet there so the opportunity for runoff of slurry is much greater um, and you know, you're not too far away from your neighbors. So um, manure management is a really, really challenging issue. And they also don't really compost because it's too wet and the compost can't get hot enough to to denature manure the way that we're used to out here. Well, and yeah, 
like <clears throat> compost has to dry out but like you, you want to keep the center kind of moist but and you get it hot and dry <laughs> exactly yeah yeah to render it at least neutral if not sterile yeah so we've talked about dairy I do have to ask I know you <laughs> didn't tour any facilities uh, but did you notice any beef cows over there I saw a few beef cows um a lot of Angus some red Angus and Angus um come from Scotland and I did see though I saw some belted Galloways <laughs> Oh, nice. The Oreo cows. Yeah, exactly. And I saw them <laughs> literally in Galloway. <laughs> that is cool. That I... is so cool. That's totally poetic, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I, as much as I've been around beef cows my whole life, um, and we have a neighbor um, that John actually runs cows with, and he has Galloways. They're not belted. Um, but anytime I see a belted Galloway, my inner child comes out. I'm like, there's an Oreo cow. Exactly. I need one. <laughs> I did yeah. see um I did see some Dexters too along the coast. Uh well, my boss and I, so when I got there, it's a nine-hour flight, by the way. I flew direct from Denver to London and then London to Glasgow in Scotland, um, which is on the west coast. And then we immediately set out six hours down south again <laughs> um but uh we traveled through scotland england and wales and then made our way back up and on our way back up that last day um we went along the coast to see um to see oh shoot i forget the name of the sea the, the irish sea maybe i don't know one of them's gonna listen to this and say i got it wrong but <laughs> <laughs> um just really, really beautiful countryside, and part of it you could actually see Ireland across the, across the way. Um, that was super cool. It was just a faint outline, but you could see it. And um, also along the coast, I saw a lot of sheep, and there were actually more beef cows along the coast than I saw anywhere else. But it's so beautiful because they have the hills that are like super rolling and beautiful and really smooth. And then there's the road at the bottom and then the pastures continue right down to the coast. And it's just so picturesque and so beautiful. Um, and I've never seen so many sheep in my life. <laughs> um, it was just, it was just gorgeous and stunning scenery and just, you know, different from what we see out here. Yeah, no, I think that's, and I, I mean, when I think of Scotland and Ireland, I think of the sheep and the cattle on like exactly how you describe and the, you know, in the pictures we see. Um, and it makes me, makes me want to go visit sometime soon, to be honest. Yeah. Well, if you go, I'm coming with you because it's totally okay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a girl's trip sometime. We totally will. And we're going whiskey tasting, tasting because holy smokes, the whiskey was just outstanding <laughs> oh yes 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 and yes yeah um so I have to ask because when we talked to Ethan Lane um and he had talked he was in I'm gonna get this wrong too but he was in the he was in Europe somewhere um meeting with their equivalent of USDA and talking about issues and stuff um what did you notice as far as how agriculture how food is socially accepted when you were, um, you know, eating and dining and stuff. What was your take on, on that aspect of things? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, most of the time it was just like here, no big deal, order what you're gonna order and we all eat together. Um, but my boss Willie did say one thing. He said that he had heard of millennials and younger generations. Um, you know, if one of you in your group orders a burger, um, you know, a beef burger or any kind of meat, um, sort of getting shamed by your friends or even by like the waitress or the wait staff, um, you know, on the basis of climate change or animal welfare or anything like that. And I didn't encounter any of that, but just that whole idea just blew me away. Um, something that I've been reflecting on the last few days after I listened to a shit podcast, <laughs> pardon my French, um, a podcast that seriously attacked animal ag and just made me mad. Um, I've been reflecting on the idea of choice and how blessed we are in first world countries to be able to not only be able to eat whenever, however, wherever we want, but to be able to have the vast array of choices that we do. And um, that podcast I was listening to, the part that really got to me was she was trying to dictate eating policies or eating choices on everyone, not just people who have the privilege that we do. And there was a quote that I heard several years ago about this um, this guy who had grown up in Ethiopia and he turned into a, a food some kind of official, government official or whatever. And he said, um, while you guys are fighting over non-GMO and vegan and, you know, no meat and stuff like that, us over here in Ethiopia, we would just like to eat. So put that in your thinker, you know, like dictating how and what people can eat when you have the extreme privilege of what I just said is just the absolute height of hubris, in my opinion. I, I couldn't agree more. And I was, there was a, um, I think it was humans of New York, um, had traveled to India or some, some country over in Asia, I believe it was. And it's been a few years back and, and like they do, they take a picture and then interview somebody. And this <clears throat> like 18 year old boy said, if I could just create a drought resistant crop, to feed my family forever. That's all I want to do. That's why I'm headed to go study. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And the light bulb went off in my head, Catherine, that that's how GMOs were created. Mm -hmm. That's how we got, um, you know, crops out here that, that use a little less water and that we have those capabilities of have gen genetically modified um, crops that that meet those needs so that we can ha have an abundance of food in the United States. And here we are having food fights over <laughs> over that. And people are 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 begging for that technology. Um and we waste and it exists so much food. Yeah. And that technology exists. I mean mm -hmm. I would imagine that most of our listeners are familiar with golden rice, which is that was um it's one of the first GMOs, I think, developed by Dr. Norman Borlaug. Um, and if you don't know who he is, go check him out because he was literally the uh, the the author of the Green Revolution as far as, as um, crop efficiency and abundancy goes. But anyway, golden rice um, is a GMO crop that produces uh, more vitamin A, I think. It's something that you need to have 
proper vision and it prevents you from going blind. And we don't have that issue in the United States because we can get such a variety of vitamins and minerals from whole food sources. But um, places, I think it was especially in Africa, um, you know, they don't have access. Their normal diet doesn't contain enough vitamin A, but they do eat rice. And so here was a solution to, you know, that public health crisis. Well, there was someone in Europe who, um, I forget if it was an agency or an activist or what, but they scared those governments into thinking that these were Franken foods and essentially got these GMO crops banned from those countries, um, which is just another example of of uh, that hubris of, you know, we have enough to eat, so we're going to dictate how everybody else eats too. And I mean, everything you're describing, those crops exist and they aren't able to be utilized because of fear mongering. Yeah, no, and it, and I am all about, like, we need to have standards. We need to hold people accountable for making sure they are done correctly and there's not something in there that we should be fearing. But there's been no sources of that available. And we have FDA, we have um, USDA, we have all these regulations in place to protect our food safety. And while there is occasionally outbreaks of listeria and E. coli occasionally or salmonella, <laughs> Um, in our food sources, GMO we, sources though <laughs> they're not GMO sources, and we have the safest food in the entire world, right? Yeah, and exactly. I so anyway, not to get on a rabbit train, but that's I just find it fascinating because Europe, in general, in the EU, I know from a beef standpoint, has really strict um, guidelines for what we can ship over there as far as hormones and grass-fed and corn and you know all that mm -hmm. all that stuff so it's it's interesting that um you know from Ethan's conversation and what you experienced that there is that that their economy seems to be doing very well in the fact that our generation can can snub their nose at a hamburger is is quite interesting to me yeah yeah <laughs> I agree. I know we're getting a little off track here with the whole Scotland topic, but what we're talking about right now, listeners, is definitely something we're going to explore in future episodes because it's becoming more and more prevalent. And in my opinion, it's unacceptable. Um, you know, it's like the morality police out there and, uh, you know, using using policy and legislation to to dictate the way that people live their lives. Um well, quite frankly, it really pisses me off. So <laughs> we're going to yep. talk no, and it's, about this. <laughs> and I think, I mean, tying it back to Scotland and your trip there, it just shows that these issues are definitely first world issues, but they're worldwide for first world issues. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So, well, Catherine, um, is there anything else I'm missing? I feel like I could pick your brain all day on yeah, I know. on everything. But I do want to know. Give us a give us a synopsis on your whiskey tasting over there because I've been <laughs> drinking well, whiskey instead of beer lately. So yeah, no. So um, just up front, I didn't get to taste as much whiskey as I wanted, um, just because we were working most of the time down in England, and you know, there's plenty of whiskey across the border and stuff. But I really wanted to have a solid Scottish whiskey tasting experience which didn't quite happen but I promise you it will and maybe when you and I go together <laughs> <laughs> but I did get to drink um some whiskey one was Glenfiddich um 
and it was just really, it's, it's smooth, but it's got so much flavor to it. You know, it's not whiskey that you can just, you know, pour down your gullet. Um, and I have never really found a whiskey that I would do that with anyway, because I find the taste so strong and it took me a really long time to get used to the taste of whiskey, but, um, unfortunately I'm a snob. I don't like crown Royal. I thought bullet was pretty good for a while, but that's lost its, its taste for me because now I know what the good stuff is. <laughs> <laughs> But the Glenfiddich was, yeah, it was smooth. It was, it was just sipping whiskey. Um, you know, it probably took 45 minutes or an hour for me to go through about one finger of it. <laughs> um, and then at our company party, which by the way, um, company nights out and Christmas parties in Scotland are no joke. Like we started at three o'clock in the afternoon and we went till two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> They party a little different over there, like a little different and quite a bit harder. <laughs> um, but at our at our Christmas party, I got to try Lefroy, um, which, by the way, the whole Celtic Gaelic language, just anything that is written, it is not pronounced the way that it is written. So Lefroy is L A P H R O A I G. Um. States, English, and all our weird rules still apply or don't apply. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that one was kind of peaty and smoky. And um, it's not one that I would drink all the time, but definitely an interesting experience for it. And then my last whiskey tasting um, was uh, in the airport in Heathrow at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> My flight from Glasgow was at 5.30 in the morning and then it was, I was at Heathrow at seven o'clock in the morning and there's the duty-free stores, you know, so I loaded up all my favorite European chocolate um, <laughs> and then they literally have a whiskey tasting, tasting like part of, um, part of the duty-free shop and I'm not kidding, it was probably about the size of my house. I mean, there was just whiskey wall to wall, all the stuff you could possibly imagine um, and there was a special booth for Johnny Walker Blue. And I have a soft spot for Johnny Walker Black. And the blue is supposed to be pretty amazing. And over here, um, the price for Johnny Blue is over $200. So I've never bought it. But um, you could taste Johnny Blue here or at that little at that little booth. And I'm like, it's seven o'clock in the morning and I've been drinking all week. I don't think I can do it. And I was like, well, but there's no other place I'm going to be able to try Johnny Blue for free. So I better man up and do it. <laughs> So I did. Um, and it was, it was amazing. I've never tasted a smoother whiskey. And then I, I drank it straight the first time. And then the second time the lady said, you should try it with just a drop of water. And I'm like, how much can a drop of water change, you know, five mls mm -hmm. of whiskey? And it completely changed the flavor. And it was also really enjoyable. Um, this one was a little bit smoky, but not, it didn't taste like a cigarette. And it was, it was really nice. And just out of curiosity, I asked what the price was and she told me, and it was less than half of what it was in the U S and I was like, I am taking that home. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is cool. Yeah. So that was the extent of my whiskey tasting experience first time over to Scotland, but I can promise you it will get more extensive the more often I go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very cool. And it's just, it's just fascinating to, um, I mean, Scotland's known for their scotch, you know, but, exactly, yeah. um, 
it's cool just to kind of see the different different areas and and what they're what they're known for as far as alcohol and their social and cultural behaviors I guess and I don't I'm using it very broadly but no it's um, totally true like it it is it's you know there's a lot of tieovers between our cultures but there's also things definitely unique to that country and they're mostly fun and enjoyable and I'm struggling to come up with anything specific right now but um it's just fun it was just a good time the Scots they know how to party um their banter is bar none the most hilarious I have ever heard (laughs) (laughs) the insults are the most creative like it was it's just fun you know they're um I don't know. I would have said that they were more casual. My boss said that we're more casual over here in the U.S. um, and less formal. And that seemed to be true, like on the flight over, like they were very prim and proper um, and, you know, very, very service oriented. But I think just with regular Joes in regular situations and hanging out, um, way more relaxed than we are, a lot freer. And we'll tell you exactly what they think. (laughs) Well, and they're, um, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know if grace is the right, right word, but their grace for time off and holidays and maternity, oh, paternity leave is is almost tenfold to what we have in I the United States, too. We should be wrapping up here pretty soon, but I would, I, I do want to say something about that. You know, I had a, a meeting um, with my boss and our CEO, and um, it was to discuss my performance for the year and see if, you know, see if we could improve on on what my compensation was. And uh, they had asked me to tell me what my health insurance entailed, what maternity leave was like, that sort of stuff. And when I told them, like, especially for maternity leave, um, that the only thing we're guaranteed in the US is six weeks of unpaid leave, they were just aghast. They were appalled um, because that, I mean, what they get over there is six months paid and then an optional six months unpaid. So you could take a year off. And I mean, when I had Harper, um, I got about 10 weeks because I had been so sick and it had been such a difficult delivery. Um, but it was all unpaid and I could have used another one or two months. I mean, for me, a year would probably be too much. I'd go nuts, but, um, you know, they were just appalled by what the standards are here in the U S which are the lowest in the developed world. And even my health insurance, you know, I told them what the deductible is. They asked just out of curiosity, how much it costs to have a baby in the U S and, you know, I told them average is about seven to $10,000 out of pocket. And they were just, they were appalled and they should have been like, it just sucks. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't lead to very good maternal outcomes. And I don't mean to be sounding feminist here, or maybe I do, because I believe that women should have rights and, <laughs> you know, all of those sorts of things too, because giving birth is a very traumatic experience and you need time to recover and, and it's just, it's crazy. It's all over the place. And then you're expected to go right back to work like nothing happened. Um, and so I just, I think that that's something that we could definitely work on in this country and have a lot to learn from our neighbors on the other side of uh, the Atlantic. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, there, we can, that could be a whole other <coughs> podcast episode in itself on policy behind it all and the implications and blah, blah, blah. But um yeah, it's definitely, definitely different standards. And, and um, I think they value, you know, you, you talk about the parties and stuff too, but they, 
they value that connection and they value that time to let loose and have fun too. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in that same vein, I get 30-ish days of PTO a year, 30. Like at the end of this year, I had to take two weeks off for Christmas because I hadn't used it all. <laughs> like, and they want you to take it all. Like they, they expect you to take it. I mean, two week holidays in the middle of the summer, are very common. Um, you just go. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, and it's, yeah, no, I, my brother works same thing for a French company and the time off and his paternity leave and everything, everybody around here is um, pretty flabbergasted at, especially in rural America. Where yeah, and in agriculture too, because in agriculture, we take even less time for ourselves. Right. And you got it when you have stuff that's got to be fed. Yeah, it's right. It's sensitive. It's, it is hard. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that too. But as usual, our conversation about one topic has meandered through several others. <laughs> yes, we get on rabbit trails very easily. Well, Catherine, is there anything we've missed or anything you think you want to leave listeners with before we, we wrap up? Just highly, highly recommend getting out of your bubble and going to see what agriculture and what life is other is like in other places. You know, in the U.S., we've got a bunch of different regions. Things are very different in the east from the west. I mean, start with that. And then if you have the opportunity, go overseas. It is so cool. There is so much to learn. By and large, people are good and friendly, you know, and they want to tell you about what they're up to. People love to talk about themselves. <laughs> so if you get the opportunity, go, 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 go. I love that. Um, life's too short to stay in our bubbles, I think. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, well, Catherine, thanks for sharing um, your trip with with me and listeners, because honestly, as I'm reflecting, I think this is the first deep dive you and I have even had. Um on your trip. Life's been so um, easy since I got back. <laughs> yeah. Um, and listeners, we thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We want to hear from you. Um, where do you plan to go in 2023? Where have you been? What's been your favorite place? Um, what's on your bucket list, etc. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag.